Well, that was cool having announcements from the Nightlife Center. That was good. So, I'm Joe Davis. I'm the pastor here at Grace Life, and uh, I'm excited to be with you guys today. We're continuing with our series on the Gospel of Mark. Um, this is week number 41. Can you believe it? We've only got about 65 more to go. <clears throat> We're getting close. Uh, I've titled the message this week, Help with Our Unbelief. Sounds good, right? How many of you would be willing to confess this morning by way of introduction? I believe in Jesus, but I sure wish I believed better. Good. Everyone but, uh, everyone but Slater raised their hand. Slater's got it squared away. See, as Christians, we want unwavering faith. But let's be honest, it's almost impossible in this world, especially when you factor in our own weaknesses and prone um, tendencies to doubt. And we feel it. You know, we know those times our faith is starting to wane, right? We know we can feel it coming on like a migraine. We see it in our actions and we see it in our priorities and we feel it in our hearts that, uh oh, I've got a bad case of the doubts coming on. And it can manifest itself in depression, anxiety, misplaced trust in people or things that will betray us or let us down. It's that faith valley that we all have experienced from time to time. Maybe many of you are experiencing it right now, this morning. So what is it that could make our faith stronger? Wouldn't that be a great question to answer? What would it be great if we could figure out a better way to experience God's hand in our lives? What do we got to do? Read the Bible more? What do we do? Let's look at the story from Mark chapter 9, verses 14 through 29. It's a long passage, and I thought about not reading it and just telling the story, but I'm going to read it. <coughs> Excuse me. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them, and the scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about? And someone from the crowd answered, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever, he seizes it, whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples, to cast it out, and they were not able. And Jesus answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? Man, that's harsh again, right? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him immediately, it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood, and it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father cried out and said, I believe. Help me with my unbelief. It's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, 
you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, oh no, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast out this demon? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. That is not a throwaway line at the end, just remember that. So what we're going to do at the, with the passage, like we always do at Grace Life, we're going to break it down three ways. First, look at the history of the passage. What about man? What does he do and why and how does he do it? I'm going to talk about what's going on at the bottom of the mountain. So just remember, Jesus is continuing his march toward the cross for his death and resurrection. He has limited time left. <clears throat> and right now, his primary focus is making sure the disciples have everything that they need for when he is gone. This period of hardcore focused teaching and training of the disciples is going to continue and Peter, if you remember from a couple weeks ago, Peter, James, and John have just come down from this incredible mountaintop experience with Jesus, and they find the other nine disciples who were not, weren't so fortunate to go with them, they are overwhelmed by a hostile crowd. They're in trouble. They're in a heated philosophical and theological argument and debate with the arrogant, angry scribes who want to discredit Jesus and his followers. Not only are they being debated by these people who perhaps saw a weakness, right, because the disciples weren't with Jesus, so they seem like maybe easier prey. But not only is that happening, they're being mocked and scorned for their failure in healing this boy. Oh, we thought you were the disciples, Jesus' followers. You can't heal this guy? And then the scribes join in. Yeah, what's wrong with you? It shows your teacher really doesn't know the Bible. This isn't some coincidence, by the way, right? With Jesus and the top three disciples gone on top of the mountain, the rest of them are vulnerable to, to attack by the enemy, and the scribes happen to be there. The man comes and this crowd. This is certainly the enemy at work. But this is what the scribes and the Pharisees always did, right? They have Jesus derangement syndrome. So let's... Talking about that, they're taking advantage of the situation. But there is this issue of their personal public failure. The catalyst for this scene was a father seeking healing for his young boy that is possessed by evil. And he recognizes the disciples, the father does. Remember, in previous messages, we talked about how they were sent out on their own in groups of two to do some healing and teaching as a kind of a test run. Remember that. So they'd seen disciples healed before on these little excursions. And so this father sees an opportunity for his boy who has suffered for years. Surely these disciples can heal my son. And they have healed people before, but it seems to have failed very publicly in this setting after several attempts. Can you imagine the pit in their stomach? The nervousness? It's like, it's like the disciples at this point somehow are missing some sort of power they had before. But evil isn't the only thing present in the boy. It's present in the scribes who are rejoicing at this very public failure. The situation is spiraling out of control with a hurting, desperate father 
and an adversarial group of scribes whipping up the crowd into a frenzy against them. And they keep trying to argue and to heal and argue and heal, but they're having no success. Their failure is snowballing. And with each attempt, the scorn and the scribes grow louder. You can imagine they're losing confidence, right? They're losing confidence in their faith bit by bit. It's a humiliating, embarrassing public scene. But then Jesus returns. He's returning from the top of the mountain with the other three disciples. And the crowd is amazed, the scripture says. Think about this. See, Jesus is more than a rabbi. He's a miracle worker. He's a rock star. And the crowd sees him and their heart flutters. I want to talk about the Greek word about amazed. It's, it's a compound word. It's a very strong compound word. Ekthombeo. To be struck with amazement. To be thoroughly amazed and astounded. Let me explain to you why this is interesting in the compound. Ek means the, it's denoting the point of origin. So it is saying the amazement starts here. The amazement is from here. Ek means an original point where an action proceeds from. Then the thombos is the second word. It means stupefaction, surprise, astonishment, wonder. And so what we see here is the, the astonishment, the wonder, the stupefaction starting point is Jesus. Jesus is ekthombeo. He is the center of their amazement. Beforehand, there was no faith and no hope and only scorn. But now Jesus is there. They see him. And suddenly this crowd who was mocking the disciples is amazed and they run for Jesus. Do you see what's happening here? No faith and they see him, they have faith. The disciples have disappointed the man. They've disappointed the scribes. They've embarrassed themselves. They've offered no hope. The scribes haven't offered hope either, by the way. The crowd is wholly underwhelmed by the disciples, but all of a sudden here comes Jesus, and suddenly they are stupefied, amazed, astonished. All he's doing is walking down the mountain. I bet, though, as Jesus comes, the disciples were never more glad to see him. <laughs> like a big brother to the rescue, you know? Like these little guys are getting beat up on the uh, playground, and big brother comes. What are you doing with my little brother? And all the bullies run scouring away. The crowd's amazed. The disciples are comforted. Jesus is there. And now all of a sudden faith is off the charts now, right? But that's unimpressive faith. That faith is easy. He steps in, Jesus does, and he pulls them out of an embarrassing, outnumbered situation. And he demands to know what is going on. So look at the spiritual. What about God or Jesus? What does he do and why and how does he do it? He gives them a lesson on faith. So these shamed disciples, right? Jesus responds with a phrase he's used before <clears throat> to criticize a weak faith looking for miracles. They say what's happening and nobody wants to answer. And the father says, well, I asked them to heal my son and they couldn't. And Jesus says, oh, believe, unbelieving generation, how much longer do I have to be here? In other words, when are you going to get this? He's not talking to the crowds. This time he's not talking to the scribes. He's talking to his disciples. 
He's not being mean. He's not being vicious. He's simply making a diagnosis of a problem. And later he gives the prognosis for the problem. For two years, they've been with Jesus all day, every day. They've seen miracles big and small. They've heard him teach. They've seen how others respond to him. They have had weighty discussions philosophically, theologically, about important topics with the one they themselves have confessed is Messiah, he's God. They've actually seen him cast out demons, raise the dead, feed thousands on a few crackers. Humanly speaking, their faith should be pretty strong, don't you think? I mean, wouldn't you be just a little bit jealous of their faith if you're honest? Wouldn't you trade the strength of their faith for yours? You'd make a mistake if you did. The reality is these men struggled with their faith just as much as we do right now today. <clears throat> Even with all this experience, their faith was continually precious and delicate in need of nurturing, encouragement, affirmation, loving, patient care from their Messiah. What was the difference? Always before, Jesus was where? He was there with them. And now he's gone just a little bit on an excursion up the mountain and everything goes to hell in a handbasket. They're struggling to believe. But soon, though, there will be a cross. Jesus won't be around anymore. There'll be no more cavalry coming down the hill. When he's gone, they're really going to struggle. That's why he has to make sure they can do this on their own. But then we have those shame disciples. We also have those arrogant scribes. The disciples don't answer the question. They're shamefully quiet. They're losing the theological debate and the healing failure, you can understand. They're disciples of Jesus, but they're paralyzed by shame. That's amazing, by the way, that they're paralyzed by shame. But the scribes don't answer either. They're cowards who have been bested by Jesus many times already. The arrogance leading them to attack the disciples also keeps them from risking embarrassment by taking on Jesus face to face. They can't afford to be schooled by Jesus in front of this crowd. They have worked into a frenzy. That would be a disaster. It would be all over Twitter. The struggling disciples were an easy mark, but when Jesus returned, their tactics must change. Now they've got to be more cautious but then I want to talk about a father's desperation. The boy answers. He's unencumbered by the shame of the disciples, right? He has no shame. He wants help. He's also unencumbered by the arrogance of the scribes. There's no arrogance there. No shame, no arrogance. He is motivated by desperation. Seeking a miracle for his boy from Jesus. And he explains the situation. It's a lifelong struggle. He can't speak. He's writhing on the ground, teeth grinding, foaming at the mouth. A life spent trying to keep his son alive, rescuing him out of wells and pools and fires that he would fall into, always having to keep his eye on him. This father has experienced shame, embarrassing public displays for years, but he doesn't care. His desperation has taken over. Now, after years of pain, misery, he finally has an audience 
with a sympathetic, compassionate Jesus. Your disciples couldn't heal him. I know the scribes can't, but Jesus, can you? Think about this. The man in this story who has the least biblical knowledge and the least experience with Jesus demonstrates the strongest seeds of faith. You get this? The one most likely to have faith is the one that has the most. And it's in the response of the Father to Jesus. Jesus says, this can be done if you just believe. And the Father says, it's amazing, right? I do believe. Help my unbelief. He says both things. I love the confession, right, that he believes. We can get into that. But that's the easy part of faith. He also acknowledges he still has unbelief. And he asks, if you allow me, he prays for help with the parts of his heart and mind that are still in doubt. He knows his humanity gets in the way of his belief. <clears throat> and Jesus does heal the boy, thankfully. The demons would be defeated once again. The scribes are made to look like fools once more. He casts out the evil. The son appears to be dead. How would that shake your faith, by the way, if you were the dad? You're asking for help, and he casts the demon out, and everybody says, look, he's dead now. But Jesus picks, picks him up by the hand. See, this is why he knew he needed help with his unbelief. And this is what real faith looks like, church. Peter, James, and John just got a lesson in their need for more faith on the mountain with Moses and Elijah and Jesus. And now all the 12 of them get one together. The scribes are schooled on faith as the most unlikely candidate becomes the greatest example of faith for all of them. He demonstrates believing is only the start. True faith produces a constant reliance upon God for his faith to continue. It's a lesson that the disciples must learn very quickly. They must be ready for when Jesus is gone and he no longer comes down the mountain to amaze them. <clears throat> the disciples are confused. Why couldn't we drive this evil out of the boy? What's wrong with our faith, Jesus? See, they were trying to do this miracle. A good thing. It's not a bad thing but they were doing it with faith in their own spiritual abilities with no reliance upon Jesus. Ironically, though, in his name. A lot of ministries like that today, isn't it? Jesus says this type of thing can only be done with prayer. Your faith won't be strong enough without prayer. Wait, where's the prayer in this story, church? Well, it's very short and very simple. I believe. Help me with my unbelief. Wow. That's the prayer. That's all the prayer it took to cast out the demon. This man, the father knows he's spiritually weak. He knows he's going to have a hard time through the process of believing in Jesus to save his boy, even though he wants to believe. There's the prayer. Help me with my unbelief. Wait a minute, Jesus. That's all we would have to do? 
Let's look at the personal part of this. I want to talk about the roots of faith. So this was the Sunday sermon preview and social media all across the social media platforms. <clears throat> Strong belief isn't inspired by experiencing miracles or amassing knowledge. Who does that sound like? The miracles or the knowledge? Scribes and Pharisees and disciples. It's born out of desperation and the gift of faith. So let's talk about what many of us seem to experience on a regular basis. I want to talk about dysfunctional faith. It's faith, <clears throat> but it's very dysfunctional, right? It's faith that fails us when we need it the most. It's faith that is pretty good on Friday at 5 o'clock. But on Monday, Tuesday, or Wednesday, when life gets hard or we get bad news, we start to waver. It's also faith, like with the scribes, that produces judgment, arrogance, and superiority like the scribes. I have seen that just this week with the story of a famous Christian who has struggled at Liberty University, and I've seen a lot of Christians celebrate in a strange way this failure instead of prayer and love and looking for restoration. That's what the scribes were doing with the disciples. But let me look at this verse in 2 Corinthians 4.18. As we look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Remember when Jesus came down the mountain and they were amazed and they all ran to him? That wasn't faith. Faith is on the things that we don't see. Both the scribes and the disciples had dysfunctional faith. One produced shame, one produced arrogance. And it manifested itself in what appears to be complete, total religious failure. The knowledge of the scribes produced dysfunctional faith, manifested by their arrogant, loveless rhetoric of judgment. And time and again, we see faith that is founded on those things, experience and knowledge, experience and knowledge, the things we would think in the world would make us have strong faith. When our faith is founded on those things, that faith often becomes dysfunctional, distorted, misguided, and frankly, unreliable. It's the reason why many who claim to follow Jesus today have dysfunctional faith just like the disciples and the scribes did. And what's the result of that dysfunctional faith? Well, we wander. That's what happens. We turn the attention, our, our earthly attention to earthly temporal things. We start to put our faith and trust in those things that we can see, things that amaze us, things we can feel, things we can touch. By the way, things that will never save us. Isn't it amazing how dysfunctional faith causes us to return to the very things that let us down in the first place? But now let's talk about dependable faith. That's what we want, right? Hebrews 11.1, 1, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction or the belief, help me with my unbelief, the belief of things not seen. Dependable faith, like that of the father's the son's father. It's not born out of experience or amassing lots of biblical knowledge. It's not dysfunctional, unreliable faith. But his faith, the power of his faith is born out of this incredible 
combination of desperation and prayer. Desperation and prayer producing incredibly strong faith. I believe. Help me with my unbelief. I'm bold enough to declare in front of everyone that I believe in you, but I'm also bold enough to say, I need help believing more. Peter, who, by the way, had witnessed the transfiguration and then comes down the mountain and sees this, says it so beautifully, it gives me goosies. You ready? Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is the same guy in the story. By the way, do you know who Mark, when he's writing this, you know who he's getting the account from? Peter. Mark is writing the gospel as it's told to him by Peter. It's the reason why Peter put this story in the gospel through Mark. And look what Peter says. He says, your faith is better than mine. Because you're believing and you've never seen him. You love him and you don't see him right here with you. You believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible, filled with glory, and you will obtain the salvation of your souls. That's powerful. Faith in a God we have not seen, a Christ we've never met, a resurrection we didn't witness, <clears throat> an eternal life in a place we've never been to, a justification promised and transformation that is yet to come. That's when our faith is dependable. That's the kind of faith the father's boy had. It's the kind of faith we are called to and given access to. That's the lesson Jesus is teaching his disciples in this story. Times of doubt are going to come, boys, and you got to be ready. And while, yes, it's a blind faith, in an earthly sense, it's not a foolish faith. There's plenty that affirms our faith. I could do a whole series of sermons on the science, archaeology, and philosophical truths that affirm the gospel. Probably be almost as long as this Gospel of Mark series. We also have the beauty of Scripture that encourages us. This Scripture that miraculously somehow these ancient writings that capture our heart like it did when I put it up on the screen and you just read what Peter said and I saw some of your eyes open up. Wow. It changes how we process the world. And yes, our faith, church, is very imperfect. We struggle. We doubt. We are prone to wander. We're prone to put our confidence in other things that have already failed us once before. It happens naturally. Humanly speaking, we would love all the experiences and knowledge, wouldn't we? So sometimes we think, boy, if we experience what the disciples did, and understood the Bible like the scribes, there'd be no stop in our faith then, right? Well, it stopped theirs. Because doubt creeps in, regardless of your experiences or how much Bible knowledge you amass. But here's the great thing about strong faith. Are you ready? 
Strong faith is not afraid of doubt. Weak faith is fearful and frightened of doubt. Strong faith is not afraid of doubt. Strong faith accepts and expects doubt. That's when strong faith has the courage to rely more on the power of prayer, which, by the way, takes what? Faith. Help my unbelief. Come on, Pastor Joe. You got to give me more than that. Prayer? Pfft. I need a pill. I need a 12-step program. I need something concrete that I can touch, feel, and trust in. I must tell you, the words of the dad are so remarkable to me. And let's face it, if you're anything like me, your pastor, I need something very accessible to help keep my faith strong when I start to doubt. It's got to be right there in my pocket. And the dad's prayer is just that. It's so simple yet so profound and so powerful and so accessible. I believe. Help me with my unbelief. I believe. Help me with my unbelief. Can you, for a moment, emotionally connect with the Father's words right now and that prayer today at this moment? Yes, Pastor Joe, that's me. I believe, but I need help with my unbelief. You want strong faith? The key to it is accessible to you right now at this moment. In this incredible story where Jesus showed the real power was not experience or knowledge. It was desperation and prayer. And I love the fact that this is not some long, flowery, liturgical, high church falutin kind of insightful prayer. Dear God, thank thee in thy area up there this day. Nothing like that. I believe. Help my unbelief. It's genius in its simplicity and accessibility. Help me win by, uh, with my unbelief. For me, it might be one of the most inspire, inspiring verses in Scripture. How about you? Heavenly Dad, we believe. Oh, Heavenly Dad, please help us with our unbelief. We know doubt's coming. We know struggle is going to be here. And we confess, we believe. But can I just go ahead and pray ahead of time, Jesus? <laughs> Help me with my unbelief. I mean, I know I'll pray it when I'm struggling because you've made it so accessible to us. You've put this incredibly simple yet powerful prayer in our pocket. I'm going to pray it now. I'm going to pray it for our church. Lord, I know they believe. Help them with their unbelief. Lord, I'm praying it for me. I believe. Help me with my unbelief. And then remind me when I start to struggle and I start to put my eyes towards temporary things in this world that have let me down before, remind me of this simple, accessible, powerful prayer. I believe. Help me with my unbelief. In Jesus' name, amen. Guys, thank you so much for joining us at home here at the Nightlife Center. We love you. We think of you often during the week. If you need anything, let us know. We've got your back. Have a great week.